Hello again, this is Pastor Ed Collins with North Christian Church. This is Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Really excited about this message. Hopefully you are too, just by the title alone. But before we dig in, let's bow our heads and open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of doing this thing, of dining on the very bread of life, Father. What a privilege this is. Thank you for allowing us to do it together this way, uh, in the unity of faith, a faith that you've given us by grace as an expression of your love, Father. Thank you so much for building this congregation up, for keeping us together through thick and thin. Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to worship you through the study of your word and to be able to do it together in this unique way. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are hurting right now, that need some comfort, that you give it to them, Father, and if your will be done, use one of us even as a vessel, an instrument of righteousness to bring glory to your good name. Father, we pray also for those in this world that are still lost, <clears throat> without hope, that they be humbled before it's too late, and they receive saving faith, Father, so that they might enjoy the incredible blessings of eternal life and this living hope that we live in, even this day. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a time like this a time of rejoicing. May we never become familiar with it, Father. We do just ask for your blessings on this message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this is Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Certainly not disjoint from our previous messages. So if you haven't been keeping up, I encourage you to go back and listen to those messages. They're just, there's so many pearls of wisdom in them from the Spirit as a gift to you personally. With that said, uh, I want to share, I was doing my morning reading the other day and was reading Proverbs 17, and, well, I was blown away by it. As you know, it's a wisdom book, which means it summarizes a lot of godly wisdom for us, often distilling our own thoughts into memorable snippets, and it's poetic even. And as I was reading Proverbs 7, point after point, and principle after principle, these things, things just kept popping up that reminded me so much of our messages as of late. So I want to begin reading it together now. And I'll point out some of the things that I noted along the way. And maybe you'll see a few of your own and be blown away yourself. All right, let's go to Proverbs 17, verse 1. Go there, Proverbs 17, verse 1. Again, the message title is Proverbs 17 Wisdom. We're going to do a survey, as it seems, of Proverbs 17, which is just phenomenal given all the good things we've learned over the past couple of months even. 
Proverbs 17 verse 1 reads, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Oh boy. I wonder how many people are wondering about this kind of a thing after <laughs> being locked, sort of, uh, not locked up, but being uh, forced together um, in, in homes uh, that normally people would be able to make excuses to run away from. Anyways, just speculating there. <clears throat> Proverbs 17, 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Immediately, I think about the struggle Americans have with money. Specifically, the beautiful aspects of life that they sacrifice for a bigger piece of the so-called American pie. Immediately, I think of my neighbors, not my specific neighbors, but my American neighbors and the struggle that they have with money and how much they sacrifice for a so-called piece of the American pie. I've known far too many people who've lived with lots of stuff, but they've sacrificed their home lives for it. I see it every day, and I hear about it from others. People who continue to make poor decisions so that they can have, as Solomon wrote about in his book of wisdom, a house full of feasting. And remember, you can't say, well, Solomon was never rich, so he didn't understand how awesome having wealth is. You'd be dead wrong. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes and you'll learn immediately that Solomon pretty much had it all. And if you know anything about Solomon, you know that he was exceptionally rich. Not just the wisest man of his time. Solomon experienced things folks like you and I only read about. Sometimes in fairy tales even, to be honest, right? Have you ever been a king? Or how about, have you ever been in possession of more wisdom than anyone in the world? Or how about so much wealth that you can't even spend it? That's Solomon. I'm serious when I say go read the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, it's not even that long. It's like 12 chapters long. So the consummate, the point is the consummate wise man, Solomon, wrote this book not just on, you know, hand-me-down knowledge, wasn't just, well, someone told me. There's some of that in there, in uh, Proverbs, of course. But much of it that he writes about is firsthand experience. So it's wise for us to open our hearts up to the truth that he gives us. One last point before we press on here. Hold your thumb there in Proverbs 17. Go to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. Same author Different book, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. Should be right around the corner. And just a little friendly reminder from Solomon before we get back to another portion of his writing. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9 reads, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already uh, in age, it has been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be 
among those who come after. In other words, Solomon's famous words, there is nothing new under the sun. This means that we don't have the freedom to write off his wisdom, as some people do, in an attempt to, you know, dispel God altogether by claiming, oh, that's outdated, or it's no longer applicable because times have changed. Those are garbage statements made by people trying to slip out from underneath the sovereign hand of their creator. Think of it this way, to render the Bible inapplicable is to disconnect oneself from God, for it is his word after all. Okay, with that said, go back to Proverbs Proverbs 17, verse 1. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Reads, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. I'll say this before we even press on up here on the board. There's no substitute for experience. Not that you want that kind of experience, but maybe you should listen to someone who's actually writing it, who actually had incredible wisdom to share with us. There's no such or there's no substitute for experience. In his God-given wisdom, Solomon warns us that it's better essentially to be poor or without fanciness or uh, good food even it's better to be poor and peaceful than rich and agitated better to be poor and peaceful than rich and agitated as the spirit's been pointing out for years now we americans have our priorities screwed up we have been trained from an early age that wealth is the target we ought to shoot for with the assumption that peace and happiness will follow, you know, once we've arrived. Again, that's garbage thinking from the kingdom of darkness that is essentially one big old trap. Do you remember the little birdie that refused to get suckered into the trap with the baited net? (laughs) If you're one of the morons that has invested all of your valuable time and energy into, quote, making it, Well, the Bible says you're dumber than a bird. Proverbs 1, 17 to 18. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. This is what it means. This is what's happening in America even. People are dumber than birds. They set an ambush for their own lives. Can, can you rightly count yourself among those people, possibly? Are you chasing after the wind, as Solomon would say? Is your life essentially vanity? Are you like the little birdie who takes the bait every time and says, Darn it, I'm back in the trap again? Are you that bird? Are you the dumb bird? <laughs> well, How about exercising a little of this newly minted wisdom the Spirit's giving you right now and avoid the trappings of the world altogether? I wrote a whole blog a while back titled this, The American Dream is a Trap. I stand by that, and I wrote that years ago. And by the way, it's in the first volume of Diary of a Journeyman. The American Dream is a Trap. 
And just as a side note, the easiest way to find specific blogs that you know the titles to is go to the two main repositories uh, right now, uh, volumes one and two of the this book series called The Diary of a Journeyman. Probably two-thirds of all blogs, maybe three-quarters, are in those two volumes. The rest still haven't, I need to actually translate or organize into a third volume. That's coming soon. Anyways, God had me write that blog for the same reason I'm teaching you this day, to warn you of the trappings of the world, of our own country even, especially our own country. The same ones, the same trappings that Solomon wrote about here. And the same ones, by the way, that Paul wrote about years later. Hold your thumb again. Go to 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Hold your thumb there. Go to 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Paul wrote about the same thing. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Paul wrote, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful, don't miss that word, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, not even just one, all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Sound familiar? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Okay, back to Proverbs 17, verse 1, where Solomon wrote about this very same topic. Proverbs 17, 1, again, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. All right, we could spend all day on this one verse. I mean, we could, actually. <laughs> but that's not my objective here. Suffice to say the following. Up here on the board, careful what you sacrifice. That's what the Spirit's saying to you. Careful what you sacrifice. Nothing is more valuable than the word of truth. Anything or anyone that takes you away from taking in the word ought to be hacked out of your life violently if necessary. I don't mean physically, so don't be getting, don't get weird. Uh, but violently, do it now. In other words, just say, that's enough. That's it. Done. That's it. it you're, you're distracting me. It's distracting me. I'm not taking in the word. I, I'm miserable. I'm trying to make excuse after excuse. Nothing is more valuable than the word of truth. Anything or anyone that takes you away from taking in the word ought to be hacked out of your life, violently if necessary. In other words, it might be a jerking motion involved. Uh, so be it. Why, why waste another day with that thing? Nothing, or that person even. Nothing is worth sacrificing your relationship with God. And by the way, your relationship with love. Remember how we ended last time? That's the divine context of life itself is love. It's the end goal of sanctification, 
is love. Anything that stands in the way of you being sanctified should be hacked out of your life. Think about it this way. When you're on your deathbed, and life is short, when you're on your deathbed, do you want to be surrounded by wealth or a family, let's say, that appreciates the life you've had with them? And this goes for the royal family of God, too, of course. Do you want to be surrounded by wealth, by your wealth, or a family that appreciates the life you've had with them? Do you want to have tears of joy filled with precious memories or tears of regret because you figured out you, you squandered your life? Now's the time to make the choice, my friend. Choose wisely. wisely. Proverbs 17, 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Let's press on now. Verse 2. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Think of it this way. Some of you abuse your family relationships. Some of you abuse your family relationships, always taking them for granted. Children are often the worst at this. The worst, taking their parents for granted. And as is often the case, children use their parents like the only thing I could think about was like a virtual ATM machine. They go to them when they have a need. I need this. I need that. And then they're gone. Just like you run up to a thing, doop, 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 take your cash out and you're gone. As is often the case, children use their parents like virtual ATM machines of all shapes and function. Up here on the board, withdrawing from the, as I'll call it, parent ATM. Children, and I mean of all ages, I'm not just talking about, you know, 12-year-olds. I'm talking about people in their 30s and 40s and 50s even, still mooching, not just financially, but emotionally, just still just hanging off the tit, if you would, of their parents. Excuse that, but that's a, think of a cow if you have to. <laughs> Children of all ages are users when they expect their parents to always support them financially, emotionally, spiritually, to bend their child's whims or bend to their child's whims and compromise their integrity, to play, quote, pretend with them and endorse their delusional, worldly thinking and actions. Yep, that's children for you, especially American children. And they're users when they expect these things to always be supported by their parents, financially, emotionally, spiritually. They want their parents to bend to their whims and compromise their own integrity. And they want their parents to play pretend with them and endorse their delusions and their worldly thinking and even actions. All of that is garbage. Given the simple statement in Holy Scripture that God is not mocked, whatever a man sows he will reap, right? Galatians 6, 7. How do you think God will respond to this type of child's behavior, especially if they are one of his own children. What do you think God says about this parent ATM trick, this little scheme 
that a lot of children have, an attitude that some children, many children have towards their own parents. What do you think our Father in Heaven thinks about that, about that child's behavior? I'll give you a hint. Are you ready? It's not news to you. Uh, I know this because I've taught the topic ad nauseum to you not that long ago. Up here on the board, I'll give you scripture. Romans 2.11, ESV, English Standard Version. For God shows no partiality. Hmm. Romans 2.11, KJV, King James Version. For there is no respect of persons with God. Does it say except for family members? Nope. There is no respect of persons with God. How does this verse, or Romans 2.11, how does this compare with the one we're studying in Proverbs 17? Look at verse 2 again. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son, you know, a family member, who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. This is God's way of saying, listen, this is God's way of saying, just because your natural relatives don't mean, doesn't mean that I want you to show each other partiality. If anything, because your relatives, I want you to show all the more integrity. Because that's what love does. Love functions in integrity. Think of the sphere of God. Hmm. If anything, I want you to show all the more integrity. What does this mean for parents, though? It means, on the flip side of the equation, don't be someone who stands in between God and one of his own creatures in your vain attempts to, quote, protect them from the world. Listen. Parents, you aren't the savior of your children, so stop pretending you are. Furthermore, stop teaching your children horribly by sending them all the wrong signals and messages. Do you really think your child isn't smart enough? I, some of you really need to listen to my voice right now. Do you really think your child isn't smart enough to figure out eventually? that all the poor decisions you made with them wasn't actually about you focusing on them, but rather it was you focused on you? Do you think they're that do you think eventually they're not going to figure that out? That you enabling them was really about you, not them? You were the one all those times that was worried about being dubbed what? A bad parent? But you didn't ask God about his opinion. Or if you did, you ignored him. Here's some wisdom for you. And this, is, this hurts a little bit, but if you're honest, you know this is true. This is the fruit of partiality. Children who are enabled in their homes grow up to resent their parents. Children who are enabled in their homes grow up to resent their parents. The goal of parenting is to be like our Father in heaven, who judges impartially, and we, in humility, love him all the more for it, don't we? When we function in humility as children of God, aren't we ever so grateful that he judges us impartially? Of course we are. Again, the goal of parenting is to be like our Father in heaven, who judges impartially, and we, in humility, love him all the more for it, even though we are disciplined by him at times. The same goes with our families on earth. Children who are enabled in their homes grow up to resent their parents. It's that 
Simple. If they grow up in a home that shows integrity, they respect their parents. One of the most common ways that I've seen in America is when the parents choose work over family. Think about how we opened up with verse 1. The, the, the fact that Americans value wealth. Even though, even though there's strife in the home, they want that big feast. They want the wealth. One of the most common things. You know, money doesn't grow on trees, as they say. You have to work for it. But there's a limit. There's a balance. God gives us our lives. So one of the most common ways I've seen in America is when the parents choose work over family. A, a, a scenario might be where both parents are working to support a lifestyle that God never ordained for them. He didn't ordain it for them. And they're constantly fretting about, maybe even arguing and fighting in front of their children, creating an awful atmosphere of stress in a place that's supposed to be a haven for peace and contentment, especially for kids. Nobody sits down to eat together anymore. And these same parents just, you know, throw some of their so-called so-called hard-earned money at their kids to buy more video games to keep them occupied so that they, you know, so they can enjoy their post-workday glass of wine or two. You know the scene. Guess what? Up here on the board, Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. This is an old story, my friends. Don't look at Ed Collins and say, what is he trying to say here? This is an old story. I didn't write it. The, the reason the Bible is chock full of shared experiences like this is to warn you of the pitfalls of what you're doing. Hence our previous principle up here on the board. Careful what you sacrifice. Nothing is more valuable than the word of truth. Anything or anyone that takes you away from taking in the word ought to be hacked out of your life, violently if necessary. Nothing is worth sacrificing your relationship with God and therefore your relationship with love. Remember our last message, the end goal of sanctification is love. Now, back to the point that Solomon was writing about. Go to verse 2. Verse 2, Proverbs 17. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. This is God's way of saying that he has no problem with a hired hand ruling over a blood relative. He has no problem with that. In other words, do not do what the Jewish people of Jesus' time did. Remember, they claim to be, you know, the, the sons of Abraham. Abraham's our father, and we're of his bloodline, right? That was their claim to fame. And by that alone, they, were, they assumed they were entitled to all the blessings of God. Does that sound familiar? Oh, well, I'm entitled to everything that my parents have. That, you know, that, that should be mine. What's theirs is mine. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You don't have the capacity for most of it in the first place. 
And if you're a parent who gives into that, uh, you're, you're not being a very good parent at all, as we just learned. Blood relatives have, has nothing to do with integrity. The word of God is the word of God. The truth is the truth. And if you really love your relatives, you want to function in integrity all the more. So don't make that mistake that, you know, the, the, the Jews did during Jesus' time where they said, well, you know, Abraham's our father, so by that alone we're entitled to all the blessings that we read about or we hear about. What, what did Jesus call them? Well, Jesus, Matthew 23, 33, up here on the board, called those people, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Ouch. That was, you know, Jesus was a Jew, remember? Hmm. These were his, his quote, brethren. His Jewish brethren. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? But wait a minute, right? Wasn't Jesus speaking to those of God's own chosen people of Israel? Indeed he was. Well, I guess what we just read about in terms of God not being partial or a respecter of persons is actually true, huh? So, with that on the table, with a perfect example, of our Lord and Savior even not being partial to his own people, Israel. What makes you think that if our Father in heaven is willing to throw members of Israel into hell, that your natural connections to your parents or children is going to protect you from his wrath? Up here on the board, Romans eleven twenty one, For if God did not spare the natural branches, Israel... Neither will he spare you. Why is that so profound, especially in the context of this message? It really just says that God doesn't respect a person. It doesn't matter what, the, what their lineage is or what their blood ties are, any of that stuff, any of that earthly stuff. Again, if God did not spare the natural branches, Israel, neither will he spare you. God functions on integrity. Integrity to truth, integrity to his word. That's our mandate. So let me see if I can net this out for those of you whose arrogance <laughs> is still blinding you up here on the board. Privileges. You are not entitled. Listen, you are not entitled to anything unless God decides to give it to you. Stop listening to the news. Stop watching television programs. Stop listening to the radio. It's not yours. You don't deserve anything. You are not entitled to anything unless God decides to give it to you. Even if your parents are disobedient to God in their vain attempts to accommodate your flesh, God won't tolerate it. Both parties will be punished in the end because God is not mocked. Again, you are not entitled to anything unless God decides to give it to you, even if your family is riddled with partiality and disobedience to God in its vain attempts to accommodate your flesh or yours to accommodate theirs. God's not going to tolerate it, and everyone will be punished in the end. Does that make sense? I hope so. How about Proverbs 17, 2 again? A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully 
and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Okay, let's press on. Verse 3. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts, or tests hearts. Again, the crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. So there's a wonderful visual here worth spending a little time on. First, what's a crucible? I mean, here's a picture of what a crucible looks like. Well, in metallurgy, it's what is used to test the purity of metal. You heat the metal up. A metallurgist will put a piece of the metal into a crucible and heat it up to an extreme temperature. That's the picture on the bottom right. To an extreme temperature. And the as the metal melts, its composition becomes more apparent as the basic elements that comprise the alloy begin to separate. You see, that's what, uh, that's what uh, the crucible is for. So again, as the metal melts, its composition becomes more apparent as the elements that comprise the alloy begin to separate. So a perfect example of this is with silver or, you know, or gold even, but silver and gold, well, given their street value, just think about why someone would want to do this. Someone would want to test the purity of a metal. Given their street value, it's pretty important to know if a chunk of gold is actually gold or not, right? In other words, is it pure, you know, 24 karat? Or is it less pure, like 14 karat gold, which has about 58% gold, and the rest is copper, silver, or zinc, let's say. I mean, if you're trading with gold, this might be really valuable to know, right? Well, the Bible uses this analogy pretty often. We sometimes read about our faith being tested by fire. Our faith is like the metal in the crucible. So we read about our faith being tested by fire in a crucible of sorts called life. Hold your thumb there. Go to 1 Peter 1, verse 7. 1 Peter 1, verse 7, a verse that we've been to many, many times. Some of you already know it. But 1 Peter 1, 7, let's read it together for the sake of context. Again, hopefully you're holding your thumb. 1 Peter 1, 7 reads, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, pre that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does Peter say that our faith is tested by fire? Well, this is the same analogy that we're noting in Proverbs 17.3. We call it assaying, A-S-S-A-Y-I-N-G, assaying. That's, the, that's what a metallurgist does. They find out, they assess, if you would, the purity of a metal. So when Peter says tested by fire. This is the same analogy we're noting in Proverbs 17.3 with the crucible. Peter's talking about finding out whether or not our faith is pure. Isn't that something that's pretty darn valuable to us? I mean, don't you want to know what where you stand if your faith is actually, as Peter wrote about, tested genuine? That it tests genuine? Don't you want to know that? Isn't that really valuable? You bet. And the only way we ever understand if our faith is pure 
is if it holds up under pressure. In other words, that when it's tested by fire, it holds up, that it's pure. It's found to be the real thing. So here's an old friend from years ago that we developed together as a congregation up here on the board relative to this idea of the crucible from Proverbs 17.3. Faith must be tested for it to be consummated. I mean, I know a lot of people that say, if I ask them, hey, do you have faith? Oh, yeah, I got total faith. Has it ever been tested? No. Then how do you know you have it? How do you know that it's actually real? How do you know that it will stand up under the pressure uh, when required, under pressure when it's required. I have no idea. Then you really don't know about whether or not your faith is pure. So faith must be tested for it to be consummated. In other words, while God always knows the purity of our faith, we must have it, quote, tested by fire, a la 1 Peter 1.7, in order to understand its purity for ourselves. You see, that's the exercise that Peter was writing about. Our faith must be tested for it to be consummated in us. God's never fooled. God knows how pure our faith is right now. But we must have it tested by fire in order to understand its purity for ourselves. That's one of the core values of even the suffering we endure. That's one of the core values. That you know. It, it, and let's face it. Think of the messages since, since this whole COVID thing has been in our lives some of us haven't fared very well. As soon as God put a little suffering on our plate, fell apart. And that just is basically you being tested by fire and realizing that your faith isn't pure. So that's one of the core values of suffering even, is figuring this out for ourselves. Suffering proves to us whether or not we have the constitution that we suppose we have. Suffering proves to us whether or not we have the constitution that we suppose we have. For many of us, we find out we can't handle the heat in the kitchen, as they say. And we're faced with a very fundamental choice. It's okay to fail the test. It really is. We all fail. Nobody's got it perfect right out of the gate. We all fail. Our faith, though it, we're stunned by it for some <laughs> for some reason, our faith fails us because it's not pure. So, but when it fails us, right? When when it when it fails us, when we realize, when we're humble, and we say, "Ooh, we just failed that test." We have a fundamental choice. Do I confess the truth to God? Do I say the same thing that God already knows that he just proved to me? Do I confess the truth to God or do I quote deceive myself? a la Galatians 6.3, and go on living in covert arrogance, or as I taught last time, uh, in willful ignorance. Do I, do I confess the truth to God and be sanctified, or do I persist in willful ignorance? Do I deceive myself because I don't like what just happened? I don't want to admit that my faith is impure. Think about it this way. The value of being tested by fire in the crucible is very much about confession. God already knows everything. He already knows the estate of your faith right now. There's nothing that needs to be proven to him. We need to have these things pointed out to us. 
things like I pointed out at the start of the message, whether it was, you know, the love of money or a certain partiality, let's say, in family matters. Those things need to be pointed out to us. Some of you say, that's me. I love, I've got this problem with money. I've fallen into the trap. Great. Confess it to God. Let him sanctify you from it. Oh, I'm partial with family matters. Great. Confess it to God. Pray on it. How can I change? What, what should I be doing differently? How can I go about this thing? Up here on the board. Proof of humility. We must willingly go into the crucible to be tested by fire. This is some, I think I'm going to leave you with this. We must go willingly into the crucible to be tested by fire. That's what humility looks like. You don't shy away from it. You say, I don't know how I'm going to come out on the other side. I have an idea. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm good. I suppose I'm doing okay. But let's do this thing, Lord. Put me to the test. Put my faith to the test so that I can see it, I can confess it. And by grace, as a result of that new realization, you can give me more of it. God gives grace to who? Humble. If you want more faith, if you want purer faith, then you have to be humble about it. And if he says, the only way I can prove this to you is if you go into the crucible willingly with an open heart about yourself, even though it's going to hurt. I mean, walking into fire hurts, right? You must willingly go into that crucible to be tested by fire. That's the proof of your humility. Are you willing to go into the fire? It's never enough to say, well, God knows the truth. I hear people say that all the time. It drives me berserk. Well, God knows the truth about me. Well, apparently you don't. God knows the truth about me. Don't judge me. I'm not trying to judge you. You judge yourself rightly. Don't just write it up. Well, you know, God knows the truth. We must understand the truth about ourselves fully and then confess it to God in order to be truly delivered from whatever impurities still remain in us. That's the situation. That's the way it goes. Again, this is proof of humility. You must willingly go into the crucible to be tested by fire. It's never enough to say, God knows the truth. We must understand the truth about ourselves fully and confess it to God in order to be truly delivered from whatever impurities still remain in us. All right, I think, I think that's enough for one message. Uh, you've got a lot to think about, but let's read, let's read the three verses one last time that we've covered just so that you have some context here overall so that there's uh, some semblance to it. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who steal, oh, deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to where the Spirit's taking this congregation. I hope you're as excited about this chapter as I am. Let's bow our heads and close. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of being sanctified in truth. Father, thank you for giving us humility. 
uh, and the ability to repent from our own sin and our own sinfulness and our sinful lifestyles, Father. Thank you for your patience along the way, your grace, your mercy, and your love, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls and to our homes, Father, and then your will be done out to a world that needs the truth so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.